And all God's people said, Gene, Rebecca, choir, praise choir, praise band. Thank you very much this morning. We appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Good morning, church. How, uh, how was your resurrection day last week? He is risen. Did you get to spend, uh, spend some time with your family and friends? Yeah? Yeah, did you get to eat some food at least uh, that Ryan Long hadn't already eaten? You got to eat some food, right? How many of you watched a little of the Masters Golf Tournament? Yeah, okay. Um, how, many, um, how many golfers are out there? Okay, how many of you golfers uh, have gone out and bought your ping, pink Bubba Watson driver? Yep, there it is. Dan said, lucky, you don't have that yet? I, I figure it's a matter of time before that's in your bag, Dan. Right? Yeah, only real men can play with that pink driver, right? Hey, I got to tell you, um, I thought I saw a hint of it when um, Bubba was being interviewed in the Butler cabin by Jim Nance, but so I followed up and I've seen some amazing articles on this man. Did you know that he's a brother in Christ, that he's a believer? And, um, you know, now I, I know that Tebow's left town, but, um, you know, there are other amazing examples in athletics and in all walks of life. I find it so encouraging um, because so much of the media, so much of what goes on um, are controlled by so few, and those few don't necessarily know the light of Christ. It can be discouraging sometimes. You want to be encouraged this week, do a Google of Bubba Watson, his testimony, his story. My goodness, he leads a Bible study, part of a Bible study on a PGA tour. He is adamant about his priorities being God, wife, family, and then golf. There might be one more in there. I thought golf was fifth. I'm not sure. If you want to be encouraged this week, go ahead and uh, Google the Masters champion, uh, Bubba Watson, and be encouraged. But um, even more important than, than family, food, fun, or golf, um, this resurrection season, I guess we can say, even more than that last week, although my next question to you is a family question too, I'm wondering if during Passion Week or on Resurrection Day, um, and even this past week that followed, were you, able, were you able at some point to come face to face and heart to heart with the immense and beautiful power of the love of God in Christ Jesus? I, I, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And he loves you. He loves people deeply and completely, more than any, any words can express. Jesus loves you so much that he gave his own life. He gave it. He gave his life for you out of love. And so on this resurrection day, or this week following resurrection day, or resurrection day season, if we're still in it, uh, I want to extend an invitation to you all this morning on God's behalf. So on, on behalf of God, on behalf of Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to deepen your relationship with him. Whether you don't know him at all and your relationship is only that he made you, because he did, or whether you've known him your whole life, wherever you are, from one end to the other on knowing the Lord and having a deep, loving relationship with Him. I want to invite you this morning 
to deepen that relationship with him because that's what he wants most. Did you know? And one of the amazing things about our God's amazing grace, and he does this because he knows us best because he made us, so only he would know what's best. One of the most amazing things about the gospel, about the good news, about our great and amazing God is it's not only it's not only the it's not only what God wants most to have that deep intimate relationship with us it's also by the grace of God what we need the most and so he offers us freely what he most wants and what we need the most it's why he came so we could all have a closer walk with God wherever we are with him this morning it's why Jesus came to die and it's why he lives again to deepen his relationship with you Christianity has a word for this relationship and Sometimes it's not presented or given as a relationship word. So um, I want to correct that or add to that a bit this morning and suggest to you that the Christian word for relationship is salvation. That salvation is a relationship word. Yes, salvation certainly has its roots in referring to Jesus Christ saving people from sin and death. That saved from part of salvation is the one that often seems to take a center stage in Christianity. And that's important, and it's true. He indeed saves us from sin and death and destruction, but God doesn't end it there, and salvation has its far more powerful and exciting side, it seems to me, and that more powerful and far more meaningful side of salvation is that people are not only saved from sin and destruction and death, but they are saved to in Jesus Christ. They are saved to an intimate, loving, forever relationship with God. I mean, hallelujah and praise the Lord for that. He's not only a God. Yeah, go ahead. Give it up. He's not only a God. And that would be wonderful indeed. It would be wonderful indeed if he was only a God that saved us from something. But he's so much more amazing than that. He not only saves us from something, he saves us to this incredible, intimate, loving relationship with he himself, almighty God. And if you haven't dwelt on that side, or if that, doesn't, if that doesn't come to the front of your heart and your being when you hear that word salvation in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to add that to your thinking about salvation, that, oh, salvation in Jesus Christ, salvation is an intimate, loving, forever relationship with God. Salvation is an intimate relationship with God and so Jesus came to die and he lives again 
to save you, that is, to deepen your relationship with God to where it's the most meaningful, most intimate relationship of your life that you could possibly have. I sometimes get the question, maybe you do too, or maybe you've had this question before, I sometimes get the question, well, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this intimate, loving, forever relationship with God? Fortunately, with that question, someone in the Bible actually asked that question. Don't you love it when that happens? That your question that you have is asked in the Bible. Or the question that someone asks you is asked in the Bible. That's an amazing blessing when that happens. Happens a lot. But it happens with this one because someone in the Bible asked what I believe is the most important question that any one of us any human being who ever lived can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this intimate, loving, forever relationship with Almighty God? And you may remember the story. It's in Acts, right? Paul and Silas are chained to a prison wall in the city of Philippi on trumped-up charges. And he's doing what anyone would do who's been beaten and charged to a prison wall on trumped-up charges. They're praying and singing hymns to God at midnight. Isn't that amazing? And then suddenly, maybe on the chorus of the hymn, I don't know, there's this great earthquake, and it shakes their chains loose, and the prison doors are flung open, and they're free to go. And their jailer decides to do the Roman honorable thing. And he's about to take his own life because he figures, my prisoners have escaped my charge. But just as he's about to do the deed and kill himself, Paul shouts out, wait! Don't do it! We're still here! And he can't believe it. And trembling, the Bible tells us, he goes to the cell, and there they are. Still there. And something breaks in the man. And so he asks that question. Sirs, he says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And maybe in context, what must I do to have a relationship with with your God who has you singing and praying hymns when you're chained to a prison wall and flip eye on trumped up charges at midnight. And what must I do to have a relationship with God that would have you out of love for me to sit tight in your cell to save me honor? What must I do to be saved? Listen to Paul and Silas' response from Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, 
Then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So what must we do to be saved, to have this forever intimate, loving relationship with God? To deepen our relationship with God. Believe in Jesus is Paul's answer. It's that simple. And it's also that hard. Now why do I say hard? It doesn't sound hard. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's simple. But what does it mean in context, biblically, from Genesis to Revelation, to believe in Jesus? What's so hard about that? Once again, the Bible tells us Jesus has just told his disciples in Luke chapter 9 that he has to die. He says point blank to them, quote, I must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he says this, <clears throat> if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever loses his life for me, sorry, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Later in the same chapter in Luke, Jesus actually turns away three would-be followers who at first seemed to be willing to follow him, but in context, he turns them away or challenges them at least because they're unwilling in context to deny themselves and to take up their cross daily. And that's the hard part of believing in Jesus, my friends. Believing in Jesus means denying ourselves giving ourselves, giving our lives, if not literally, but maybe, but if not literally, the purpose for our lives, all that we do in our lives, all of our activity, our life given in service, humbly, to God, but then as God says, oh, you want to give your service to me? Here's how I really want you to do it. Give it to others. That's our purpose-driven life, to serve one another and others in love. And that's hard. Because if you haven't noticed yet, the human condition being what it is, it's incredibly difficult to deny yourself in favor of God and others. It is for me, at least, if I'm the only one, then my testimony... It's hard for me to do that because myself, 
selfishly wants to be the center of attention. It wants to be, myself wants to be the point of my life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this part at least right, it seems to me. Salvation is a free gift, he says, but discipleship will cost you your life. A relationship with Jesus, my friends, will cost us our former life of of living for self. And oh, that former life, it doesn't want to let go. It doesn't like it. It's hard to shake that former life free, especially daily, because self dies hard. He or she is always right there. What's in it for me? And yes, I think this is what Paul's mean, Paul means when he says we've been crucified with Christ, meaning that, that, that former life of, of living for self now died through Christ. We can be free from that in the power of the Holy Spirit. But self, nevertheless, relentlessly wants back in as the focus. And that's hard. So that's why I say it's both simple and it's hard to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus is all you have to do, but it's all you have to do. Believe in Jesus is all you have to do to be saved, to have this intimate, loving relationship with him. But man... That belief is trust in, put your faith in, living faithfully. It's all part of that biblical Greek word pistis for belief. Belief is all you have to do, but you have to do it all. And so it's both simple and and difficult. So my invitation to you this morning, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, to be saved to deepen your relationship with Jesus, I'm offering you something very simple, but also something that you'll find, I think, will be one of the most difficult wrestles of your life, denying self. Which brings me to altar calls, uh, of all things. I get that question, uh, I get that question as well, frequently. Does West Bowles do altar calls? And usually the next lesson that tumbles out is, is West Bowles um, uh, an evangelistic church? Do they do evangelism? Because they've equated uh, many of the questioners with that question. They've equated uh, evangelism with altar calls as if it's one and the same question. I get that question a lot. Now, I'm defining altar call this way. If you don't know what an altar call is, an altar call is that practice in some churches where we're following a sermon on Sundays, people are invited to, 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 to make the walk, walk down the aisle to the front of the church you know, while some, uh, some music plays, and make a public decision to accept Jesus. And then when they're up front, uh, uh, the pastor or other people are, you know, are there waiting for them down front, and, and when they get there, they're uh, they're instructed to pray, uh, asking Jesus into their hearts, perhaps, and 
there are variations on this. I mean, sometimes instead of walking down the aisle, uh, people are invited to, to, to raise their hands where they are if they, if they want to do something and act on a decision to accept Christ. If you've been here any length of time, we've done that before. I've done that before with you. That Raise your hand. But basically, that, that's an altar call, a, a public decision to accept Jesus. And once an altar call is done, then those folks coming forward and making their choice for Jesus, uh, many times then there's a statement at the end or there, uh, there's a celebration uh, in prayer. Or, uh, now those people are saved. That's how I'm defining altar call, that that practice. Now I'm really curious. I asked this of the 8 o'clock service so I'm going to ask it to you guys too. How many of you, how many of you grew up in churches where an altar call was done um, on a regular basis? Yeah, the same with 8 o'clock. Most of you. That's, that's interesting and um, interesting especially to me because um, I didn't I didn't grow up in churches where there were altar calls. That was something really new to me. I remember the first time, first time I was in a church uh, where there was an altar call. And, and like a lot of new things, you know, when I, uh, I was fascinated by it, I was interested, I was delighted by it, and I was also a little freaked out. Where are these people going? You know, am I supposed to go too? What's going on? Where's the bulletin? It was almost as shocking to me as the day that I was first in a church, having not grown up with this practice, when I was first in a church where suddenly the entire congregation all at once like erupted into speaking in tongues. You ever had that experience if you're not uh, used to it? Or even if you're, well, for someone new who had never had that, I mean, it's like, whoa! You remember that, Jill? I was in Bloomington, Indiana. We were in law, I was in law school. She was in grad school getting her master's and we were looking for churches. There's a nice church. So we go in there. Everybody's all friendly. It's like, this could be a great church. And then right in the middle of everything, all of a sudden, everybody, all the speaking of tongues just goes up. Now, Jill's had that experience in her life, and so she wasn't as freaked out as I was, but, you know, she loved her husband, and she knew that I did. So she, like, took my hand, and I was like, whoa! <laughs> and speaking of altar calls, there was an altar up front, and I remember thinking, I might have even whispered to her, see that altar up there? It, Let's, let's go before they like, sacrifice on it or something. <laughs> totally not fair. I was totally naive, totally ignorant of the beautiful gift of speaking in tongues. But it, you know, first blush, it kind of freaked me out. Over the years, though, I, as I grew accustomed, more accustomed to altar calls, they like most things, right, they became less and new and less strange to me. And so, and so I gradually thought, well, you know, that's, that's what the church does now, altar calls. I mean, Billy Graham, for heaven's sakes, does altar calls. That's it. 
And then I became a pastor. Another new, t- uh, another new thing that uh, still fascinates, delights, and freaks me out. And so part of being a pastor now, I was like, well, you know, maybe I better do altar calls. And so I asked, and uh, um, Dave Beatty and others at West Bowles told me, well, you know, we really don't do altar calls, but, you know, you, you could do that if you wanted to. So I said, well, okay. So I tried. And I have, uh, from time to time, a, a version at least. I've never asked people to come down the aisle, but uh, I've invited people to raise their hands and invited them to pray along with me or in response to a prayer that I prayed about asking Jesus into their hearts because that's how I've seen it done. And but I, I'll share with you for some reason, that just didn't sit entirely right with me. And so I found myself doing that less frequently, and I still don't do them very often. But because I started getting the altar call question every so often, I thought uh, I'd explore altar calls a little more in depth, so I did some research, right? That attorney that's still latent in me kicked in. So I'm going to research this. And, and see if I could get at the bottom uh, of what bothered me or unsettled me about altar calls. Because, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's just because I wasn't brought up that way or something, and that seemed a poor reason on its own, you know, to, to, to avoid them. And so I did some research to try to figure out this altar thing. The first question I asked is, where did altar calls come from? Because I didn't know. Are they in the Bible? And I was very surprised, maybe you will too, to learn that for the first 1,800 years of the church, No one ever heard of such a thing as altar calls. They didn't exist. And sure, while the New Testament includes Jesus and the apostles and others inviting people to repent and be baptized, we don't see them doing altar calls where a public decision to accept Jesus is combined with coming down front or raising a a hand. It's never required or asked in the Scriptures. Baptism, of course, is all over the early church and down through the centuries as a public witness of belief in Jesus, but but never a call for a public decision or action to repent and believe in Jesus in the early church. Not until the 1800s. And so so that often called an old-fashioned altar call, I've learned, ain't so old. Only a couple of hundred years. In fact, a, a preacher named Charles Finney um, you see a picture of him there. He, uh, he ministered around the year 1830. He's credited with first instituting altar calls. Pastor Charles would, uh, uh, he would leave the front row or the front rows in his church open for uh, 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 people to come down and sit in if they wanted to make a decision for Christ. And then, and then get this. 
He called these front rows for that purpose, he called them anxious seats. Here's a quote from Finney. Preach to him, and at the moment he thinks he's willing to do anything, bring him to the test. Call on him to do one thing, to make one step that shall identify him with the people of God. If you say to him, there is the anxious seat, come out and avow your determination to be on the Lord's side. And if he's not willing to do a small thing as that, then he is not willing to do anything for Christ. And thusly, altar calls were born and caught on. I still don't know where I come out on the practice of altar calls, but in focusing on them this week, I, I, I've got some risks and rewards, some things that concern me about them and some things that don't at all and I rejoice in. I thought I'd just share with you this morning... Um, Right before we have an altar call, right? <laughs> well, a version uh, of one, at least. First, this first one's theological. Uh, I'm concerned that an altar call risks confusing profession of faith with saving faith. That it confuses for those watching or those participating in profession of faith with saving faith. What do I mean by that? Saving faith is not simply saying in public, I believe in Jesus, or I choose Jesus. That's a profession of faith already there. And saving faith is more than making a decision to choose Jesus. It includes that at some step along the way in your salvation before the Lord. But it's more than that. As I started out this morning, saving faith, salvation is about being in an intimate relationship with the living God. And my concern with an altar call is that it might communicate that simply saying, I do, to God's offer of salvation necessarily means you're saved. It might, only God knows in that moment, but saving faith is more than saying, I believe, saying Professing, I believe, is a profession of faith, not necessarily saving faith. The illustration of marriage comes to mind. You recognize those two? Yeah, it's Chris and Char Kauser, yeah? And it's also a lesson to you, be careful what pictures you post on Facebook. Because I will find them and maybe put them up on the screen. But I love that picture. Like salvation in Christ, marriage is a relationship. In fact, it's the relationship that God compares our relationship with him to. Marriage. But if I asked you, or if I asked someone to tell me what it means to be married... Can you imagine them saying, well, what it means to be marriage, what marriage is, is showing up at the wedding and saying, I do. That's what it means to be married. Oh, if only it were that simple. You married folks, yes? Someone over there especially. 
understands this. Marriage is much more than that. And I, I worry that placing an emphasis on altar calls might send the message, well, that's it when it comes to being saved. Oh, you may be saved at that very moment. Only God knows for sure the condition of your heart. But salvation, our relationship with God, is also that process over time, uh, like all relationships. And it takes a lot of work to make a marriage work, to make any close relationship with work. And I think that's one thing at least Paul has in mind when he tells us, work out your salvation, that deepening intimate relationship with God, with fear and trembling, he writes. Writes it to the church in Philippi, that same place where he was thrown into prison. Second, as a person making the altar call, as someone who's uh, the one inviting you to respond to an altar call, I, I know one thing I feel is I, I'm always concerned that I'm trying to manipulate the moment or manipulate someone, or, or playing on their emotions, or cornering them somehow in their anxious seats. You know, put the squeeze on them, close the deal as if it's up to me. Guilting or, or peer pressuring them into choosing Jesus or something. I came across a cartoon this week um, that made me laugh. See what you think. The bottom caption says, Pastor Steve delivered a fine sermon balancing content with pace until his background as an auctioneer kicked in during his passionate altar call. And then he's saying, yes, I see that hand. Do I see two? Let me see two, 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 two for Jesus. Let me see three. We have three, four, four, four newbie Christians. Do I hear five? Let me see five, five. Let me have six, six is the lady in lavender. Seven, eight or nine or ten or ten lambs a leaping for joy. Praise God. See, Pastor Steve even taps into that, you know, uh, thing in us that we, you know, we don't want to be left out of so we want to buy something. Right? Yeah, me! Fortunately, there's something called buyer's remorse. And I wonder sometimes. Listen, I don't want anyone ever to feel pressure from me or anything that we do here to feel manipulated or, or, or anxious in their seats or feel somehow that someone's twisting their arm to just, you know, make this choice. You know, we're going to play 15 verses of just as I am until someone says I do. <laughs> so if you want to go, someone better come up. And I... I want you, I want anyone, I want all of us, wherever we are in relationship with God, to respond in love to God because you're responding in love to God. And love can't be manipulated, can it? And so I worry about that. On the other hand, here's what I love about inviting people to choose Jesus. It gives them that opportunity to say, I do. And, and, and no, a marriage is not the wedding ceremony. But let's still have the ceremony. I want to go to a wedding. I want to see where that bride and the groom say, 
I do to each other. That, that's beautiful. There's something profoundly beautiful and needed in community when, when someone wants to come forward humbly and sincerely and passionately and face down before the Lord. Man, I want Jesus. Why should baptism have all that fun? Second, another reason um, I love altar calls, as far as the timing on Sunday morning is concerned, or am I concerned with, you know, with manipulating the moment? You know, there is power. There is God's power when we experience him in music and in message. True power when the word of God is preached and when we lift our voices in community to praise him. And so shouldn't we expect that the Holy Spirit of all moments might choose that moment to convict people then and there, here. So why not give them an opportunity to say, yeah, I want Jesus. In conclusion, and we need to get to the Lord's table, can't wait. Like with most of these sorts of church practices and traditions, uh, I find myself a bit torn uh, on altar calls. I, I think Peter at Pentecost is a great example, I think, for us to follow. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he opens the word of God and proclaims the love of God has now come in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who loves them. And as long as I'm standing here, as long as I'm living, I am going to be eager to do just that, proclaim that same gospel message. But I suspect I'll always be a bit reluctant uh, to get into people's faces, especially strangers, about their sin problems and try to use emotion of the moment to try to seal the deal while they're in their anxious seats that I helped create for them. And yeah, it's true. Peter preached that Pentecost day to many strangers, and he didn't hesitate to tell them what they must do to be saved. But it's also true that before Peter told them to repent and be baptized, he waited for them to ask, what must we do? And so too with Paul and Silas. They waited for the jailer to ask, what must I do? They waited to be invited to tell about being saved. And, and P.S., on Pentecost that day, the public profession of their heartfelt belief, and so too with the jailer, wasn't an altar call. It was baptism. So here's the deal for me. And again, maybe we can continue to talk about it as we go forward as a people of God here at and along West Bowles. Because I'm just one of you guys and gals. And I, I still wrestle with it. I don't know how best to invite people to believe in Jesus. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, I overthink things too much. You think? <laughs> I'm just reluctant for people to feel I'm trying to twist their arms to get them to say, Uncle, I do, to God's offer of salvation. But I want to continue to open the Word of God in the hope that people will get to know Him better. And the hope that if they don't know them yet, they'll want to be in close relationship with Him. They'll want to choose Jesus, either in public or on their own, between them and God as that decision goes. I don't need to mediate that. And so I will ask from time to time 
on a Sunday morning and other times if someone is interested because you never know the Holy Spirit may be working in someone's heart even right now and if so why not give the opportunity for that person to respond to God's movement in them when people ask me whether or not um, West Bowles is an evangelistic church my answer is always yes without question we are But we don't necessarily define evangelism as altar call. Evangelism, it seems to me, is another one of those relationship words. That's God's plan for us, for the church to reach people out of relationship someone has with you, if you know the Lord, with the people of God or with a person of God. And in the context of those relationships, God will sooner or later stir in someone's heart to ask their friend, maybe to ask you, sir or madam, What must I do to be saved, to have that beautiful, intimate, loving, forever relationship with you or with God? And then tell them. That's why I encourage you, if you haven't already, to participate in the ministries that we have here at West Bulls Church because that's one of their purposes. There are small groups. You get to know people far better than you can get to know me or Rebecca or the choir or those folks here on a Sunday morning. And it's out of those relationships, it seems, it's the best place for that question to stir and to be answered and to ask. It's God's plan for the community of of God's people. But if you're wondering this morning, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas give the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved saved and believe there means a relationship with him where you put your trust in him and do your best so help you God and he will to be like him and being like him means first and foremost to deny yourself to lose your own life so to speak like he did out of his love for others and if you want to respond to that offer of belief of salvation of relationship if you want to respond God's offer of that you'll have an opportunity in just a moment in fact beginning right now you see the tables set around the room for our celebration of the Lord's Supper which we also call communion it's a time that believers remember the love of God expressed in his son's sacrifice on the cross in his resurrection which Open the door for us to have salvation, to have that intimate, forever, loving relationship with God. The praise team is coming back up again, and they're going to they'll help prepare our hearts this morning for communion by singing something called the communion song, beautiful song. So I invite you now to prepare ourselves this morning um, in music to come before the table of the Lord. Let's prepare. You see around the auditorium different tables set up. In a minute, I'll invite you to pick any one. They're all the same to come up to, and there'll be some attendants there who will offer you uh, the bread uh, and the cup. Those of you on the balcony, don't worry. We won't forget about you. Someone will come your way. So uh, no rappelling down the 
What we'd like to do, what I'd like to do included in this time of communion is uh, um, during the time of communion or maybe just after um, you take the bread and the cup, you are welcome, if you like, uh, to come forward into either corner. Uh, we, I've asked members of our prayer team to be there and um, to pray for you if you have a prayer need. Or maybe you want to come forward and you want to tell someone, you know what, I really want to choose Jesus today as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, if you do, that's fantastic. And just know from my heart, you don't have to do it this way. That's between you and God ultimately. But if you'd like to, we'd be thrilled to know and to offer whatever we can in terms of prayer for you. So... Come on down front if you like, uh, following your communion for prayer, um, for just personal reflection time if you like. And then uh, after a while, we'll, I'll close the service with the benediction. On the night uh, before Jesus died, he met uh, with his disciples for Passover dinner. And he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks to God for it. He blessed God. Blessed are you, O Lord, for giving us food, this bread, out of the earth. And then he offered it to his disciples. And he said to them, This is my body, broken for you. Take it. Eat it. Remember and, and believe that my body was broken for forgiveness of your sins so we could have this intimate forever relationship together. And then in the same manner, he took the cup and he blessed God for it. Blessed are you, O Lord, for giving us this cup, this wine out of the earth. And then he turned to his disciples and he said to them, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Take it. Drink it. Remember and believe that my blood was shed for your forgiveness of sins. His table is prepared for you. Come, let's celebrate communion with our Lord together. Would you stand, please, uh, for God's benediction this morning? It comes from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, his final brief word. Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. If you'd like to even come forward after the service to talk or to pray, I've asked folks to linger. They'd love to talk and pray with you. God bless you all. We'll see you later.